Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Hi, this is Julie Fudge-Smith. Uh, welcome back to Your Family Dog Podcast. I'm here with the lovely Tina Spring, and today we finally have, we're very excited to have Robin Bennett of the Dog Gurus with us. Now, Robin, um, I have a, 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 a great fondness for Robin because she was the woman who trained me as a trainer in Virginia and when she was running All About Dogs. Um, she then sold that and has gone off to... Uh, join with Susan Briggs to have the Dog Gurus, and they are the world's premier pet care business advisors. They have a cumulative 40 years of experience with dogs. Robin is the author of All About Dog Daycare, which I have. I think I have a first edition of that, Robin. And <laughs> um, she has, um, let's put it this way, they are business owners that love dogs and they use their 40 years of experience to help pet business owners launch and grow successful businesses. So with that, Robin is here to talk to us about doggy daycare and what we should be looking for when it comes to doggy daycare. But welcome, Robin. And uh, Thanks for having me. This is exciting to... We've known each other for a long time, Julie. It's, so, it's kind of cool that we work together and now I'm on your podcast. I know. So. I just, who knew? In, in 2003 when I joined, but, but there's a little story about that. When Robin was the one who helped us through the crisis with Molly, the dog that killed our neighbor's dog. And from that, I decided I wanted to become a trainer. So I talked to Robin about it, but hadn't told my family yet. So at Robin's wedding, I'm sitting in the pew and Colleen Pilar, my first podcast wife, was in the pew in front of me, turned around and said, oh, Julie, Robin told me you want to join our staff. I'm so excited. You want to be a trainer. And my family looked at me like, what? Huh? <laughs> so it's like, um, I, I'm just like, hang on, guys. I'm just thinking about it. But I, that was not quite the way I was going to. Not that they were upset, per se, but it was just real <laughs> news to them. So anyway, that's a little aside. So with that, Tina, you have our first question. Well, now I'm wondering if I need to ask, like, what the colors were at the wedding. <laughs> don't I'm really, not even sure right? I remember. I don't right? remember. I do remember I Robin's white. I remember that. It was you a beautiful a dress. <laughs> and it scared the crap out of Carrie, your dog, when you went home. I remember you telling me that because your yes, profile was my, so different. My dog did not want me to come in the front door when I came home with that wedding dress on. Too funny. Okay, so I'm super excited that you're here. Um I have an international customer base as well as local, and many of them have utilized doggy daycares or are utilizing doggy daycare for their dogs or are considering it. So I'm so excited that you're here because I really want to be able to give people not just well-meaning support, but genuinely great advice about how to figure out a doggy daycare that's a good fit or whether it's not a good fit and warning signs and all that stuff. So I guess my first question for you, um, Robin, is when a family is considering doggy day, utilizing a doggy daycare, where, where should they begin their journey in, in that process? So that's actually a great question. And I will start by saying that, and Take in mind that I actually make a living helping daycares do the job well, but I also do think that 
the majority of dogs do not want daycare. The ma- I really feel the majority of dogs like s- very small, very specific <laughs> play groups. And if you're wondering why Robin laughed, um, b- Tina and I are both cheering in silence in the background, <laughs> going, "Yes, yes." We're, we're- both yeah. muted because we're blabber mouths, but we both just had enormous parties on Robin's behalf for saying <laughs> what every dog trainer worth their weight would say, which is it's a horrible idea most of the time. And so, I do think I, I do think again. there are some dogs that like to play with other dogs in very specific groups. Um, but I do also think that it's probably less than not completely unscientific, but I would say in all the dogs, what we've experienced and seen and evaluated, it's probably about 40% or less of dogs that really love to play in daycare. So I would start with that. The second thing is I tell people, what is the reason they want to bring their dog to daycare? There's really good reasons. One of them is they want an energy outlet. That can be a really good reason, but that energy outlet also can be obtained in other ways. So if you bring your dog to daycare and maybe they don't do well in daycare, that's not the end of the world. You can still find an energy outlet for your dog. If you really want to bring your dog because they need to be socialized, I will just remind people that if you have a puppy, socialization is going to happen the very first time you go to the daycare. They're going to experience a new environment, new dogs, new people. Every time after that, it's no longer socialization. So the point of bringing your dog to socialize them, really, it works the first time. And then after that, sure, they're meeting other dogs every day. But after a while, they are still seeing the same dog most of the time. If you have an adult dog, and this is the biggest caution that I would say, if you have an adult dog who you think needs socialization, normally that means they don't do well with other dogs. (laughs) Daycare is the last place you want to take that dog. So if you have an adult dog and you're like, oh, he doesn't do well with other dogs yeah. and people tell you, to I don't know, them, I don't go to I daycare. I think daycare is a better bad decision than a dog park. That's the last place. Well, exactly. Yeah, I would say that. I mean, and I would say if it's a daycare. educated people managing things, it's not just Chuck E. Cheese for dogs. So, Yeah. But if you if you have an adult dog that needs help learning how to be around other dogs, there are some places, but normally these are not daycares. Normally, there are people who are behaviorists or experienced trainers who are offering a very specific group environment with the specific goal of helping that dog be comfortable around other dogs. That's totally different. So let's just be clear. When I talk about daycare, I'm talking about... Uh, where dogs are just going and putting be put in a group or of whatever size and they're playing with other dogs. That's the main goal is that they're there to play. So for an adult dog that doesn't really like other dogs, that's not the environment, nor is a dog park. You're right. And dog parks are would be worse for that as well, because it's just not going to help your dog. Your dog needs very specific behavior modification for that kind of thing. So they, they just require more support right. than like here, let's go victimize my dog again or victimize someone else's dog because my dog's over threshold. Right. Yeah, and, and a daycare, I've, I've yet to see a daycare that has staff educated enough to be able to do that all day, every day and do all the other things they need to do. Like, I don't know. It would, it would 
it's like an EBD classroom. It's yeah, it's very it's a very different setup. If you can you can have a behavior modification type of a program, but, that's but that tough. is a very different setup. There's got to be fewer dogs. The dogs have to be hand selected for the program that the specific dog that you're working on needs. And so it does, it looks totally different. And you're right, the skill level of the handler is going to look different as well. So I think that's where I would start with in terms of when people are going to say, I'm going to take my dog to daycare. Now, if you are going to take a dog to daycare, there are some really specific things I would look for in that daycare. So if you, I don't know if you want to go ahead and have us cover that now. Sure. About that. Um, one of the first ones is how is the staff trained, the staff at the facility? You want to make sure they don't necessarily need to be dog trainers. That's a really great benefit, but they don't, there's a lot of really, really good daycares out there that have daycare handlers that have less training experience, but they are great at managing daycare. But I would be asking how that staff is trained. Are they trained at all? Are they trained with any specific programs? And specifically, you want them to be trained in canine body language. So what do they look for? I would be asking, what are they looking for in terms of behavior that might be appropriate or not appropriate? And most importantly, how do they respond to behavior? I, because I am a positive reinforcement trainer, I'm looking for daycares that do everything with positive reinforcement, which means if the dog is doing something they don't want them to do, how do they respond? Do they yell at them? Do they punish them? Do they squirt them with water? Do they grab them by the, you know, collar? All of which I would say not to do. <laughs> I want someone that's going to be working with some basic um, cues like calling the dog away or redirecting the dog or putting, figuring out what play group would be a better fit for the dog so that they don't show those bad behaviors. Um, any daycare where they're using a lot of physical force or punishment or another um, kind of what has become fairly popular lately is putting backpacks on dogs to suppress some of their behavior. Any of those I don't like. So I would rule those daycares out. I hadn't heard the backpack thing. What's that supposed to do? Since they're carrying this weight, they can't move as well. But it's exactly. it gives another dog a, an, an easy way to grab onto your dog and drag it. Yeah, it, there's a whole lot of issues that I don't like about it. One of one is that the whole, now there's something to grab onto, um, which dogs will do just when they're playing. But it is basically the weight of the backpack helps to basically suppress some of their behavior. So, and it is, it can help to, in appearance, calm the dog. But I just think they're suppressing behavior and it's not a good environment for the dog. I like, I like to look at, and Julie, I know you've heard Colleen and I both talk about this and you've talked about this as well, but I like to look at daycare as the dogs need to be enjoying it, not just tolerating it. So your dog, you really want a dog that gets there and is like, I love being here. This is so much fun. Not one that's like, well, this sucks, but I won't do anything about it. <laughs> and so that's kind of what those backpacks do. They suppress the dog. So maybe they'll just tolerate it without being obnoxious or doing anything about it. But that's not the environment we want. So we're all dog trainers. How many people do you, customers do you see who tell you how much their dog loves a walk and their dog is completely over a threshold every single walk? Like I can tell you, I, I see tons of problems of dogs who are out of their minds headed into doggy daycare and they're building crazy amounts of inappropriate reactivity 
But the average family is going to tell me, no, 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 like Rufus loves daycare. Like, look how excited he is. And I'm like, that's insane. That's not excited. So how do you help families navigate that? Yeah, that's that is a great one, because one of the things I do talk about is teaching the pet parents how to recognize what good, appropriate behavior looks like and telling the difference between that level of arousal versus just. I'm happy and excited, but I'm not like over the top. That whole, can you still focus? Can you still pay attention to me? You need to recognize that people are in the room. And that's what I would be asking them to think about in terms of how their dog is at daycare. Right. Are they so, are they playing over the top and never stop? Good play actually does have pauses breaks. in it and breaks yes. in it. And so I'm I'm asking, I would be asking about that as well. Or if they have a camera where they, the owner can watch, what does that camera look like? What does the dog look like on the camera? I talk about if I offer you a cupcake and you behave the way your dog behaves, would I say that you really like cupcakes or would I be concerned for my personal safety holding the pup cupcake? I love right? that. That's like, great. Because all the people who are like, no, 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 my dog loves it. When you give them that kind of example, like if I greeted you the way your dog is trying to greet that other dog, would that be assault or would that be I'm super excited to see you? Like, which one would that be? <laughs> it tends to clarify it for them. Right. That that's not happy. Like out of your mind is not the same as happy. Right. So I. I think daycares get stuck and get pinched that families expect their dog to just full tilt play the whole time they're there. And th I can't imagine something worse from a behavior standpoint. No, but a good, like, a good daycare will have those conversations with the pet parent as well. A good daycare will be telling the pet parent, this is too much for your dog. Five days a week is not good for your dog. Um, so I had dogs in my daycare that, all day long play was not good for them. And I had conversations to say, look, your dog should come half a day and then either we crate them or you take them home because all we're doing is rewarding bad behaviors and creating bad behaviors. So that's part of what the daycare needs to do as well. And I would be looking for a daycare that does give rest periods. So the daycares that have, and I'll be honest, my daycare initially was day long play. You drop your dog, as early as seven in the morning, pick them up at seven, they're out all day. Within a couple of years, I transitioned to a nap time, two hour break in the middle of the day, which for a long time, this was 20 years ago when I had my daycare, when I started my daycare. Um, what we actually recommend now is even more frequent breaks. So we would look at a daycare and the best daycares are really giving three, four, five breaks. So the dogs are not, and that means not just letting them lay down, but I mean, they're actually putting them in enclosure, giving them a puzzle toy or a Kong toy and letting them um, be by themselves and have downtime. And that we've seen that that is really, really important to the health of the dogs. And of course, parents say, well, I want my dog out all day long. But if you think about your dog at home all day, they, they are sleep. not, that is not normal dog behavior to me. Nope. Hiked they up sleep. all day long. Like that's what they do. They hike with you on Saturday and Sunday and they sleep Monday through Friday. Right. And that's healthy. It I was, is. I was on a Facebook forum for very, very high level dog trainers and their families. And somebody posted the other day and said, don't you feel bad when your dog is 
doing nothing all day? And I'm like, no, that's a happy, healthy, resting dog. Like, no, I want a healthy brain. I want a healthy body. And yes, my dogs get exercise and they get enrichment and all those things. But no, they should not be entertained to exhaustion every day. It's what we tell daycare owners, people that have the daycares, we, we tell them exhaustion cannot be your measure of success. That is not the, you know, going, sending a dog home exhausted cannot be the goal. And I know for pet parents, that is their goal oftentimes, but there's a difference between a healthy, tired and physically exhausted. Your dog, when you get them home, should still be able to interact with you and eat their dinner and, you know, come when you call them and that kind of thing. They shouldn't be so tired that they can't even get up. So that would be the other thing. I always look for a daycare that does offer frequent breaks where the dogs get downtime and they get a chance to recover and recuperate, Um, especially if you have a puppy. Puppies should not be playing all day because that's just not good for their joints and their bones either. And then the other question I would ask is um, supervision. So if you have a, if you're taking your dog to a daycare, that daycare should physic have someone physically in the room with the dogs anytime the dogs are out playing. So no watching through cameras or watching through a window, like a, the safest daycares are going to have supervision. And that supervision should be a, about one person to every 10 to 15 dogs, kind of depending on the experience of the person and the size of the dogs. Smaller groups are better and safer, but physically supervising those dogs when they're out in daycare. This and I've seen a lot of daycares that don't do that. Oh, the same ratio that I, that you should look for, or a lot of these same things remind me of what you should be looking for in daycare or preschool for your kids. Exactly. You know, one of the things that I was thinking is that uh, I remember when I was a kid and I went to church preschool, we had a rest period and I was only there for three hours and we still had a rest period in the middle of it. Um, But the other thing that I was thinking is that I think frequent breaks are really important because I think that the daycare has to take care of its staff as well as its dogs. And if you are supervising the play of dogs and you're doing it right and you're paying attention to body language and you're really involved, that can be exhausting. And I think it can be mentally exhausting as well. So I think that it's it's a really good sign that you have frequent breaks because it takes care of your staff. And what the thing you want probably more than anything else is consistently good and consistent staff at your daycare. You want to go someplace where people love working there and they've worked there for a long time because that tells you that they're being taken care of as well. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. And I, we, a lot of times equate it to being a lifeguard. And there's a reason that lifeguards have to move chairs every 20 minutes. It's just to kind of get them up. And there's a reason there's an adult swim part of every hour. And part of that is to give the lifeguards a break so that they can, you know, have a little bit of downtime and kind of re- reset themselves. But it's the same. It is definitely the same thing with daycare. If you're really supervising those dogs, it's exhausting to watch them all the time. So make so sure talk- that they're able. So you talked a little bit about punishment. Um, my experience is that, that those things are happening be when, when somehow the play group isn't being managed in a way that's preventing escalations and conflicts. So either the group hasn't been put together in a way that the dogs are tried and true with one another, or there's, 
a dog is getting too fatigued or another dog is getting too amped up or is too bouncy. Um, would you say that that's true, that ideally a daycare is working to build and maintain good social interaction between the dogs where it's not rising to a place of even ritualized aggression? Yes, absolutely. So first of all, any daycare that you are going to bring your dog to should have an assessment process. So if you go to a daycare and they're like, oh, we take everybody, just come on in, sign up, we'll see you tomorrow. I would run the other direction because the first thing is I want them to assess my dog so that they know, A, is my dog a good fit for daycare in the first place? And then B, not all dogs play the same well, same way. So you can have really a good group of dogs that are all friendly, all love to play, but they just don't have the right play style. And those dogs have to be put in appropriate groups. And we identify basically four or five different play styles and not all play styles play well together. So for instance, a lab, and I have a lab, they really like body slamming. They love to slam into walls and doors and other dogs and people. (laughs) They have no boundaries. We all know that. Well, that lab will play really well with another lab or maybe like a German short-haired pointer because they are pretty physical as well. But that lab might try the same behaviors with like a Sheltie and the lab will have a blast. Lab will be loving it. Body slamming the Sheltie. The Sheltie is not going to have much fun. And that's one of those situations where then you have the Sheltie that might growl or snarl or snap. And then people go, oh, the Sheltie's not very friendly. No, Sheltie's perfectly fine. He just needs a different play group. And so you have to have the staff understand play styles to make sure the dogs are in the right groups and then manage them in a way that keeps the arousal levels down and intervenes before things get out of hand. Right. So my question would be like, so one of the local um, daycares here has the Rowdy Rovers. And what I see is it's teaching escalations. I, 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 in every case, if one of those dogs comes and I do have a kennel license. I do occasionally let dogs come and stay here. Um, I put those dogs, those really combative play dogs that are just too aroused with other dogs. I totally put them with a dog who will refuse to play with them so that they learn to pay attention safely to subtle body language because as they learn to respond appropriately to the body language of the dog who doesn't like getting slammed into that dog will soften and then play with them. They will invite play, just go not so rough. Like don't hurt me when we're playing. So I always view that that like how to put together a great play group is really part art and part science and not what people expect. Oh, my dog loves this super combative play. So I should put him in a room with other dogs that like super combative play. My experience is that that just escalates. Well, and that's true of any play, no matter what it looks like, we would be saying monitoring the play because you can't just let it go and hope for the best. It's chasing is the same way, you know, dogs that chase and one, one wants to chase the other or whatever, about 30 seconds of that, we're usually teaching, okay, intervene. Can you call the dogs away? Because if you just let that go, it's liable to, you know, turn into an aggressive incident because that whole hyped up arousal level is associated, is linked to aggression. So we don't want any of that, even if they're having fun initially, that 
staff should know enough to say, okay, when the arousal level gets too high, we need to intervene, step in, redirect them, get them to calm down. The best dogs will actually do that automatically, like you're saying, Tina. So if you have dogs where that play will stop on its own, that's awesome. Those are the best dogs, but not every dog will do that. Well, and I think about like, that's really, as a trainer, like part of what I want to teach dogs is how to figure out where that line is and to realize that play is a communication. It's a dance and it's subtle and there should be invitations and there should be no thank yous. And we should be able to hear that. And it is a dance of consent between the members of the play group. And like not, you know, if my kid has a brand new toy and his best friend comes over, he doesn't always want to play. He wants to play with his toy. He doesn't want to play with his friend. It doesn't mean he hates his friend. It just means right now this other thing is more exciting to him or more interesting to him. And I want that good, fluid communication of nobody wants to play with you all the time. And I, I just think we're making dogs in the United States and Canada in particular. I don't know about necessarily other places. We're just training them up to be really rude with each other and with us. And it just, it, I just think it ends badly. It breaks well, my I, heart. Them. No, I totally agree with that. And I actually think the most important thing, and this is where I come down on, I love daycares that have a puppy program, but it needs to be a puppy program, not daycare that you just put a puppy in. Because I think the number one skill that all dogs need is, can you pay attention to me when things are happening around you? Not, I, it's weird because when I started my daycare, again, 20 some years ago, no, the daycares weren't normal. I spent all of my time educating my clients of why they would want to bring their dog to daycare. Cause people were like, why would I do that? I have a backyard. <laughs> 20 years later, we actually have this weird shift in society where people think something's wrong with their dog if they don't go to daycare. And there's nothing farther from the truth than that. Like, and the most important thing to me is not that my dog will play with other dogs. The most important to me is, can my dog look at me and focus on me when other dogs are around. So in a good daycare, you have, and we we actually have every year, we do a program called the Daycare Games, which is actually like our version of the Olympics for daycare handlers and where the facility itself is like the country and then all the handlers are like the individuals so you can win awards. But we basically have them practicing the three skills, which we have all daycares practice all the time, which are the recall Um, group sits and gate boundaries. So not charging through the gates. A really good daycare will be able to call dogs away from things, get the dogs to sit. So we want them practicing those basic cues every single day, because the most important thing is, does the dog know that there's humans in the room? And as soon as they get to your point where they have no idea there's people in the room, all we're doing is teaching them to focus more on dogs than people. And again, a good daycare will dismiss a dog or better yet, put them in another activity and tell the owner daycare is not the best place for your dog, um, either because it's causing problems and it really shouldn't cause problems. If it's a good dog for daycare and the staff is doing some basic manners, skill stuff during the day, not to the level of perfection that a trainer would do. It's going to look a lot sloppier. It's not going to be as pretty, but the reality is they are really good. They spend so much time with those dogs. They build a really strong relationship. I have seen amazing things. I've seen daycare handlers without training experience at all can get a group of 20 dogs to sit and look at them and patiently wait. I've seen dogs that will 
all stay behind a gate while they are called one at a time through a gate, all without using punishment, without using anything. It's just based on relationship building and reinforcement of those basic behaviors in daycare. But if you don't have that, if you just have basically nonstop recess all day long, you are going to cause problems. So I really think it goes to getting the dog in the right program to begin with and making sure it's the right fit for that dog. We see a lot of daycares that are not put that are putting too many dogs in a space. So maybe they have the supervision. There's still a square footage requirement. And so we look at and we do recommend separating dogs by size right off the bat. So smaller dogs, you can get away with like 40 to 50 square foot per dog. But large dogs, medium and large, you're looking at 70 to 100 square feet per dog. And and that's a play space. That's not like, here's how much my building is. That's literally the room that the dogs are playing in. And it, what we see is if you exceed those numbers, then you have more fights because the dogs don't have the space to get away, to take a break, to lay down, to get under something, whatever. So you can have a whole series of bad choices that make a daycare not the best daycare for a dog. And supervision is obviously a huge one, like you mentioned. But space is really important. As we know, space is really important to dogs. And if you get too many dogs in a space, even if you're supervising them, it's just not going to work out well. I just wanted to add on to the space part, because what I was thinking is, is space is not just square footage, but there's space in other ways as well. So one of the things I wanted to have Robin talk about is what should people be looking for as far as the space? I mean, should there be structures for the dogs to be able to play on and under? And so if you're looking for, you know, space, what kind of flooring should you be looking for in the daycare? What kind of, um, you know, structure should be in there? And a little bit about a cleaning cycle. You know, how often should they be cleaning and moving dogs around? So I just thought since we were talking about space, Let's talk about space as a bigger issue as well. Yes, yeah, so definitely I want structures to be in the room where the, day, where the dogs are and ideally non-porous, clean things because I will tell you, dogs will pee, poop, or vomit on everything you have in that room. So it can look really nice to have like a nice couch in there, but yeah, I'm just going to tell you that that couch is going to be gross and full of bacteria pretty quickly no matter how well-managed and well-trained the dogs are. That's just the reality of a daycare environment. Um, so I'm looking at like hard, porous stuff, kind of the material that Little Tykes Playground material is made out of that um, hard, porous material. There's specific facilities that make playground equipment for dogs like Blue Nine Pet Products and Puppy Playground. Those are the best ones. And those structures should be not too high. So more than, let, I don't want anything more than a foot or two um, because you'll have dogs usually the tiny dogs that will fling themselves off of those things. So we don't want them to get hurt um, for that. So I don't like really high structures. And I do want structures the dogs can go under. Being able to get away is very important for dogs, whether it's because they're just overwhelmed or they need to take a nap or they just, they just want a break. So giving them places where there's tunnels or enclosures or crates or anything that they can get into, go under, even chairs, just to go under a chair where they can take a little bit of a break on their own. All of those are important. And then cleanliness is because, as I said, dogs will pee, poop, and vomit on everything. You want constant spot cleaning anytime dogs have accidents. But then at least twice a day, there should be a thorough cleaning 
of the entire area to make sure that you're keeping the facility clean from any kind of parasites or pests or, you know, just dirt and grime itself. So you definitely want to make sure that that facility has a cleaning. If you walk into a facility and it smells really bad, that is because they've either not cleaning at all or they're cleaning, but they've got structures or uh, non-porous equipment in there like fabric or something that you can't get the smell out of. And so I would find a place that doesn't smell bad, honestly, because that is not an indicator of people that are, have the best interest in mind. Because if you, if it smells, if it smells like wet dogs, cause all the dogs just came in and it's raining, that's one thing. But if it smells like urine, that's just, they're not doing a good job of cleaning or they have materials in there that they can't keep clean. Cause it's really not that hard to keep it smelling nice. If your staff is doing a good job of of cleaning. And then in terms of flooring, I would look at non-slip flooring. So not tile, look at something that is cushioned. So some kind of a rubber padding, um, non-slip and non-porous ideally for, for the flooring. So uh, one of my other questions for you, Robin, is have you ever put together a checklist of questions that owners can ask that we might be able to put on our website? I I do have a question. I can send that to you. I do have a um, couple of documents, actually, some that just have some of the questions we talked about, about how's your staff trained? How do you assess the dogs? How do you supervise the dogs? Um, But I also have, we also typically send this to daycare owners, but I think it's really pertinent for pet parents as well. But we have a daycare operations standard summary, and it's about four pages of design and layout of space, what that should look like, how you should evaluate the dogs, some operating procedures that you should look at. Like we recommend dogs play without their collars or play naked as we talk about. Um, If they aren't doing that, because it's really, really interesting that dogs can, a lot of dogs will play um, play bite, you know, they'll grab each other's necks or ears or whatever. If they have collars on, it's possible for a dog to grab another dog's collar and that collar gets stuck on their mouth and it ends up looking like they're fighting, but actually what's happening is one dog's actually strangling the other. I've seen it happen um, enough times and I've heard it happen enough times that I, that's why I recommend dogs don't play with any collars at all. But if they do have collars on for whatever reason, then they should have surgical scissors available to cut collars off. And that by virtue of that also means no metal or chain or, um, collars that you wouldn't be able to cut. So nylon is usually the one that we recommend, but things like that for, um, fresh water being available, the ratio staff ratio we talked about, um, and then education requirements as well. So I can send you that document because we, I think that will be helpful for pet parents to understand what the daycare owner should be doing and just gives them more information. So when, when we talk about the kind of education we want for staff monitoring a play group, so ideally, what are they learning and when are they intervening to help the dogs? Yeah, so canine body language training is probably the biggest thing I want uh, the dog handlers to learn. And that is understanding stress signals, warning signals, and basic body language that explain the emotional state of the dog. And so that's probably the most important thing. And then that combined with positive reinforcement methods on how to intervene. So I would be asking at what point do you intervene? At what point do you use obedience to 
call the dog away? Or do you, at what point do you split the dogs from doing something or redirect the dogs or give a timeout? Because it, all of that has to be proactive. Like you said, if it's, oh, when they start growling at each other, then we split, separate them. Well, that's like way too late. There's a lot. And I would be asking, well, what are the body language cues that you're looking at to decide if they're, the dog should stay in the play group, if they should be separated? Um, so all of that training, I think, is really important. And continuing education, I think, is really important as well. But we, we, the dog gurus actually has a staff training program called Knowing Dogs. That's the one I would recommend looking for. But there are other training programs out there. And, and you, you can do a lot of stuff just through watching videos and books. Um, Sarah Collins has a really good video on stress signals and warning signals that is very helpful to a lot of people use that. Barbara Handelman has a great book on, on dog handling so and recognizing canine body language. So you can get that training a lot of different ways, but it's how are you applying it? And it has to be proactive. So would you encourage typical dog trainers who don't, for example, run a daycare, but who have a puppy class, would you encourage us to train up staff and have play groups with puppies where we're teaching these skills even to puppy owners? I recommend doing that all the time. But I used to do an indoor dog park class where the owners came with their dogs and we let the dogs play off leash. And I was doing a constant narration of what they were seeing, when they should intervene. But the focus of that was not the dogs playing with other dogs. The focus of that was, can you get the dog back to you after you get them to sit and take the leash off and they go play? So our focus was really on understanding what the dogs were doing when they were playing, but also can you get the dog to come back? And that was how I ran my puppy classes too. And everybody wants puppy classes to just be nonstop puppy play. But that's, again, that's the least important thing a puppy needs. You need to have puppy classes where you let them off leash. They go play, interact for a minute at the most, and then you're calling them back. And can you get them back to you? Can you show, are they, are, can you become more important than those other dogs? So I think that's important for trainers to be doing. And the more we can educate the pet parents on what make, what, how they can know when their dog is happy and when their dog is not happy, then we can help pet parents become better advocates. So I'm huge on teaching pet parents anything about canine body language because all it's going to do is make them a better advocate for their dog. We do a lot of showing consent. So it showing them like narrating a play and then saying, okay, this is where it looks like it's getting sketchy. This is how we would test to know whether what we think we're seeing is what we're seeing. Like, and, and we try to do that. It's hard in an open enrollment puppy class because we always have new puppies coming in and out and I don't know how well rested they are and right all those things. It, it's tough. It, it is a tough thing to do. I do not have any interest in running daycare. <laughs> I'm tired enough. Whoever does it, uh, bless them for that. That's not in, in my skill set. What I was going to say is in when I was thinking about when you're talking about puppy class, one of the things that, that I have done with, with puppy classes is if I have a puppy who's particularly shy what I do is, is because my puppy classes are no larger than six dogs, is I had the other puppies on leash, and I allow the shy puppy off lead to go and pick his play partner. And then that's right. the dog that we take off lead, and those two get to play in a separate area. 
so that what I want to do is build the confidence of the shy puppy without being overwhelmed by the boxer puppy who can't wait to play with the Dalmatian puppy. And right. so I think sometimes it's it seems like sort of in reverse, like let's protect the shy puppy. Well, I am protecting the shy puppy by allowing him to ask somebody to play that I'm comfortable with. And so yeah. that would be one thing that, that you could ask the owners, how do you, you know, that owners could ask daycare people is how do you make sure that the dogs are happy? Do they get to decide who they get to play with? Yeah. And I think th- I love the way that you're working with your puppies. I think that's exactly what they should be doing. And I would even say when daycares are offering, when daycares are allowing puppies under four months to come to daycare, it should not be daycare. It should be a totally separate program. <laughs> and so I'm not a big fan of just bring your puppy and put them in daycare. Because you're a, I don't think it's good for four month old puppies to just be playing with adult dogs all the time because a lot of adult dogs don't really like puppies anyway. So (laughs) there's that. But also it goes back to playing with other puppies at four months is the least important thing for them. So I'm a huge advocate of daycares offering puppies, younger puppies to come in. But I tell them you should have a totally separate program and it's not up to the pet parent. You go, oh, your puppy's three months here's our three month program. Right. Here's, and they, and it looks a lot like what you're explaining, Julie, where you are managing the puppies, you are giving them the opportunity to play, but you're, you know, messing up a puppy is the worst thing you could do because that's the forming their whole basis of what they're going to see in the future. So if you put them with the wrong puppy, you will screw them up and that's lifelong learning oftentimes. So you really want to make sure you're going at the puppy's pace and you're putting them with the right playmates And sometimes that has nothing to do with size and more just to do with space and time. So giving them, like you said, Julie, giving them the time to figure out how to build their confidence. Right. And and an adult stable dog with puppies can be a huge blessing. Honestly, I tell people one of the reasons I'm a decent dog trainer is I watch adult dogs and I watch what they communicate to me as a problem and what isn't a problem. The, I, I have been blessed to, to have some dogs who were great puppy raisers and they made me a better trainer because they let me know what to sweat and not, what not to sweat. Right. You know, like, oh, if the puppy's doing this, my adult dog was like, I don't, I don't care about that. But if this happens, that is a problem. Cause I think dogs are generally better at being dogs than we are. <laughs> That's a great idea. Um, one of the things I was going to say is, is that I was talking to Dr. Leanne Lilly, who is the director of the behavior program at OSU. And she was telling me, she said, you know, having puppies in like just a free for all puppy class, is like sending kindergartners off to kindergarten without a teacher. You know, it's just, it's, exactly. it's not a good idea that it really does need to be supervised. Or I, I think you kind of get this feeling it turns into Lord of the Flies. Um, very quickly. <laughs> yeah. So it does. I, I mean, the puppies don't know how to self-regulate. They just don't. And um, again, to go back to what you just said, Tina, dogs already, for the most part, know how to interact with dogs. What we need to teach them when they're young is how to respond to people. That's why I say the most important thing is, I mean, I even tell people as a trainer, if you, and so I, I'll say this to all pet parents, if you have a dog that doesn't like to play with other dogs, and I've heard all kinds of stories from people who are like, something's wrong with my dog. He's horrible. He's broken. Like, no, it's just your dog doesn't like other dogs. That doesn't matter. That is not 
being able to, for a dog to be able to play in a group of other dogs is not important to the success of their life. Now, what I do think is important is that I can take my dog for a walk and he doesn't act like a complete raging lunatic when I pass another dog. And that's all we can train for that. We can train to focus on you and to make sure that they're calm and never, ever have to let them actually go play with another dog if they don't want to do that. So I think that it's just weird that we've gotten the society that says your dog has to play with every dog or else there's something wrong with them. Because it's not that your dog can have a really fulfilling life and never, ever go to a dog park or daycare and still have a really amazing life. Julie and I have talked about like all of a sudden in the last five to 10 years, everybody thinks that they're a terrible human being if they don't walk their highly reactive, freaked out dog three times a day, no matter what. And I'm like, it's not doing what you think it's doing. Like that's, that's not like, no, (laughs) stop that. Like we got to do, we have some remedial work we need to do first because taking your dog who's walking like a lunatic on a walk three times a day you're just rehearsing what you don't want. So exactly. yeah, I, it, but it amazes me how many people who think their dog that is terrified of other dogs needs to go to doggy daycare in the dog park. And I'm like, please don't, please don't yeah. like that's, that's how to get that communicable aggression. Right. And it's not, they, it's not that important. I mean, it really isn't. There's so many other things you can do with your dog. And again, a good daycare is either going to refer you to somebody else, or they have other activities that are one-on-one attention or one-on-one games or one-on-one whatever that can give you that energy outlet. If, if that's one of the things that you need, and that's why you're looking for daycare to begin with. But I don't think it's important for every dog to play. And I think for puppies, it's more, they already know how to play with dogs. They were just in a litter. Like the more important thing is them figuring out humans, figuring out that, wow, humans are way better than dogs. And a lot of times we teach them the exact opposite. We teach them to ignore us and go play. And Wait, that incessant, in- incessant nagging doesn't, doesn't help. <laughs> it does not. You know, sometimes so, I think that like dog parks are kind of like um, serial killer training camps. Um, you know, it's just like, cause some of the dogs I see, (coughs) excuse me, people take their dogs and these are really ill behaved, aggressive bully dogs. And they take them there thinking that, that their dogs are going to somehow become nice. And and I want to say, it's kind of like throwing a white glove into a mud puddle. The puddle doesn't get glovey. Okay. Right. Exactly. And so it, it just feels like serial killer training camp to me sometimes. Well, and the other great experience I like is and I always take it back to how we would interact with our children is if you go to the dog park and I was, this actually just happened to me the other day, I was at an RV park and I took my dog to the dog park and there were four other small dogs there. And we all, all the dogs were getting along. And this lady, another lady came in with a, um, I forget what kind of dog it was, but it was a larger dog. It was a mixed breed of some sort and her dog growling and lunging as she walks up to the gate. So I'm thinking she's not going to come in here. She does. And so I put my dog on leash prior to her getting in because I was going to make an exit. And um, she said, no, this is how he is. He's fine. When he's off leash, he's good. And this is just how he plays. He likes to growl. (laughs) About that time, I just dismissed myself and my dog from the dog park. But so many people say that. They're like, well, that's just how he plays. And like, again, I go back to I have a son and a daughter. If I had gone to the into the playground and my son was just shoving other kids 
if I just went, Julie, sorry, shoved Emma, like, that's just how he plays, just likes to play that way, Julie would be like, you are a psychopath, lady, get your kid out of here. And I always tell people, looking at, if you're watching dogs, whether you're at the daycare, watching on a camera, or watching through a window, or you go to the dog park, both dogs who are interacting have to be having fun. And I think that's the part we miss, is that you look at the lab, body slamming the Sheltie, and you and if you're the lab owner, you're like, he's having so much fun. And But you have to look at the Sheltie and say, is the Sheltie having fun? And it has to be both dogs have to be having fun. Because you can get in a scenario where you just are kind of blinded by looking at your own pet. And and again, your dog, like you're there with the best intentions. And you right. you don't think of your dog as being mean. And maybe he's not even being mean. That's just how his play style is. He's just not playing with the right other dog that has the same kind of play style. So it's it's just really has to be that that understanding of all the dogs need to be having fun and not just tolerating it. Definitely not hating it. Right. We don't want them to have to lash out and be defensive. Exactly. Yeah. And I think sometimes you can just get a real feel for it. It's like suddenly everybody's having fun and then there's just like this seriousness. One of the things I tell people when we talk about play is I'll go over the different aspects of play. And I said, one of the things you need to remember is that near part of play is also part of the the prey sequence. But the prey sequence is much more serious. And if you feel like all of a sudden play's gotten serious, that's a good time to intervene. That's a good time when you're like, hey, this doesn't, you know, it's gotten really quiet and it's gotten very still and it's gotten really focused and everybody's hunkering down. I'm like, you know, maybe this is not play anymore. Maybe this is turned a corner that we don't want to go. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great way to explain it too. I think I talk about it being like, everyone's all of a sudden holding their breath and that's when you should intervene and (laughs) make sure I, a lot of times will, when I am going to take my dog to a dog park and he's five now and he's intact. So I take him very rarely now um, just because he gets interacted with differently because he's intact. Um, but I will usually stand on the outside of the gate and just watch the other dogs playing before I ever walk in. And there's times when I'll just, I don't even get him out of the car. I'll just go and watch. And then I'll decide based on what I'm seeing in there, whether or not I'm going to go in. And sometimes I go in and sometimes I don't. Walk the perimeter. You need to watch for a while to make sure that it's a safe place for both you and your dog. Right. Okay, so let's go over what that would look like. If somebody's standing outside a playgroup, whether it's at the dog park, whether it's with their family, you know, next door neighbor dogs, whatever, what would we tell people to watch and answer questions about? So I'll I'll start with, do the dogs respond to their handler when their handler calls them, even if they're chasing squirrels, noticing other dogs, somebody's walking by, whatever. What what else should they look for? Uh, one of the things I would look at even before what you just recommended, Tina, is if it's at a dog park, especially, are the, are the pet parents even paying attention to the dogs? Are they just all like over in the corner drinking coffee and hanging out? So I want an, I want a day, I want a dog park and same thing for a daycare. If you have more than one handler, in the room, they should be on separate ends of the room. They shouldn't necessarily be right together, just chit-chatting. Um, it's human nature, but it's not what they right. should be I doing. want the humans moving. Right. We so talk I about want... that constantly in in puppy class, like keep moving. Right. Keep so moving. I want... <laughs> and then I do want to see, are the dogs responding to the people? 
Um, if I'm bringing my dog in, whether it's daycare or a dog park, I want to see what the other dogs do when my dog comes up to the fence or the gate. Um, general interest, I'm okay with. Lunging, barking, I'm not. So a lot of that. And sometimes that will happen for 30 seconds and then it'll dismiss. The worst time to let your dog in, whether you're letting them into a daycare or you're letting them into a dog park, is when everybody's the most dangerous place of any off-leash play is the gate. That's the most dangerous location for both a daycare and a dog park. The worst thing you can do is let a dog in when all the arousal level at the gate itself is high. And what most people assume is the dogs are crazy. The sooner he gets in there, the better. And so they like to just open the gate and shove their dog in. That's the worst thing you can do because the chance of having a fight right then is huge. So in a daycare or if I take my dog to a dog park, I'm just going to stand in that double gated area and let the dogs get bored and go away. And that might take in a in a good daycare. That's not going to take long because most of the dogs are used to the fact that high arousal level at the gate means nothing happens um, at a dog park. It can take a couple of minutes. And if it doesn't end, I'll just leave because I just don't want to let my dog in that way. So I'm looking for that. I'm also looking for when the dogs are playing, what does that play look like? Kind of explaining uh, what Julie just explained a minute ago. Is it high arousal? Is it, does it have that loose sense of fun? Or is it like everybody sort of holding their breath and things are not as playful and fun as they should be? And then I'll look at what are the dog are the dogs kind of joining up into their own groups or does it seem like one dog's kind of doing what I call flybys to everybody kind of that dog that goes by and like nips and then runs away and then nips another dog and runs away so just what does the interaction look like within the play group as well I like to tell people to watch if the dogs if a dog looks like it's uncomfortable are the other dogs honoring that? Like if a dog is like, hey, I need a break. Are the other dogs honoring that? Are the other handlers honoring that? Or or do we have a dog who's getting picked on and pushed beyond where they're comfortable? Yeah. And we look a lot at dogs that are, what I say, telling you they want to go home, which is they're jumping on their owners or they're jumping or they're constantly hiding and can't get away. So that's where they hide under the picnic table, but dogs are still going in there and bothering them. I would intervene and get those dogs away from the dog who's hiding under the picnic table. Um, or are they going to the gate and constantly jumping up on the gate, which is them saying, can you let me out of here? I really want to go home right now. So I'd be looking at that as well. And making sure the the dogs that do understand canine body language are going to be the ones that go, well, he doesn't want to play right now. And that's fine. I'm just going to go over here and play. But if you get a dog that's harassing the other dogs, then in a daycare, that dog should be moved to another group or given a break. Right. Well, one of the things I also look for, too, when I get to the dog park is, is not only what are the owners doing? Are they all standing under the tree drinking coffee? But are the dogs circling the owners? One of the things I find that that tends to really sort of rev everybody up and start to sort of bring in a little bit of resource guarding is the dogs just circling the owners and circling the owners and not playing, circling the owners. And that always makes me very uncomfortable. Yeah, that's a that's a really good one, too, because a lot of times those are dogs that will end up um, guarding if another dog comes up towards their owner or especially if the owner has something, food, water, whatever. Right. And, and you just don't know. I mean, so I've seen dogs guard water bowls. They, you know, right. it just, it doesn't necessarily have to be food or toys. It can be, you know, people, places, water, that kind of thing. Exactly. So that's, that's one of the things that I look for. 
So what's something no one knows to ask, Robin? I know we talked about a situation before we started recording today about a really horrible tragedy. Um, what are some things that people need to ask about that they don't, that no one talks about, like, hey, you need to ask about this? I think, well, I think some of the um, pet parents who take their dogs, I think they a lot of times assume that daycares are certified and run or licensed or inspected. None of that is true. So the first thing is just understanding that the daycare industry is non-regulated, which means anybody can open a daycare. So that's the first thing just to understand that when you're bringing your dog, and this goes for any pet sitter, um, whether you're going to a facility, whether you're hiring someone off of Rover, um, anybody that's going to take care of your dogs, none of that is regulated. Um, you might be regulated in the sense that you have to have a license, but all that means is you paid your county or state or municipality something money to open a business. Beyond that, everything that you are going to have that person do with your dog, you need to be questioning their their training methods, whether you're, you're using positive training, because not everybody trains the same way, as we all know. Um, but beyond that, I would also be looking at, obviously, the supervision like the, nobody ever thinks to ask, are you watching my dogs through cameras or physically having somebody there? And that goes for not just during daycare, but if you're going to keep that dog overnight, whether it's for a board and train program or you're just going out of town and you're going to leave your dog. But what happens at night? So does that facility have staffing overnight? And if they don't have staff, if they do have staff, is the staff awake? That would be my first question. Um, and if they don't have staff or if it's a sleeping post, which some places do do, um, how are they monitoring what's going on in the facility? And you could ask that question as well for daytime, too. If you're in any place, well, let's just be honest, emergencies or disasters can happen anywhere. If you're anywhere where there are hurricanes or tornadoes or wildfires or earthquakes, whatever that disaster is for your geographical area, there should be an emergency evacuation plan in place that is practiced at least a couple of times a year by that staff. And so it could be during the day, but it's also important to ask what happens overnight. I don't think anybody ever, ever, I think most parent pet parents assume that someone is staying with the dogs overnight. And most of the time that's not the case. And that's not necessarily a problem, but if they're not going to have somebody overnight, then what kind of monitoring systems they have? How would you know if an earthquake happened, what would you do? If a fire happened, how do you get the dogs out? If a um, tornado is going to come, how do you get the dogs out? I mean, what's the emergency evacuation plan for the animals? And for most facilities that have those, there's typically a way of making sure they have all the online contacts so they can obviously call the pet parents as soon as something happens. They have a way to get the dogs out. Normally there's kennel leads that are available that they can immediately get on the dogs and get them out someplace. And then usually someplace where they're going to take them. Like, what's your emergency location where you're going to take these dogs if something does happen? So, well, and how are you going to transport them? Because if right. you've got 50 dogs in your care overnight and the person's driving a Camry, right. like, what are you going to do? And for some places, their emergency is that they're going to have crates that are all like certain distance from the location. For something like a fire, that would work. Um, in most situations where it's a, um, a tornado, you don't have a lot of of time. And so no. what are you going to do with those dogs? It, do you have a, you know, a area where there's a safe, it's safer to be like the basement or wherever. Um, do you have a safe room if you have some kind of 
um, tornado or something like that. If you have something like an earthquake, same thing. Is there a that's something you really can't respond to in advance, but is your building up to code, which most of the time is dictated by your county. But for older buildings, I would be asking that question if you're in a place that's prone to earthquake, because <clears throat> sometimes older buildings are not required to have the same things as newer buildings. So just asking, you know, what code has that been built to? And if you're in a place where there's a lot of earthquakes, if that's a risk, um, what kind of safety measures are in place for that? For places where they get um, hurricanes, typically most daycares will evacuate or have owners pick the dogs up because usually you know when a hurricane's coming um, or they have really solid evacuation plans where they're usually going inland to another facility to, to, for the, to keep their dogs. And there's usually a fee for that too, um, which is why usually they try to get the owners to pick up the dog before the hurricane comes. But sometimes that's not possible. You know, if you're out of town and can't get back, then you are going to have to have them care for your dog. But all of those questions I would be asking so that you're sure in the horrible situation that happens that there's some evacuation plan in place. It's, it's tough stuff. And to be fair, I mean, most of us don't have, I want to say, when you talk about like the fire safety council, most families don't have a plan for how to evacuate their home if there's a fire. Right. So, you know, it's we put off the things that we don't like to think about, but it can it can get really bad. Yeah. So. And I would say in most the most of the situations where there has been a fire in particular, and that was the situation we were talking about earlier. Um, it's often not the fire that ends up killing the dogs. It's often the carbon monoxide fume. So is there something that alerts you if fumes get too big, which most houses are required to have now anyway, but in most states anyway? not necessarily a fire suppression system like sprinklers. And the other thing is sprinklers work. Sprinklers don't work where there's a fire and every sprinkler goes off. Like that's a kind of a myth that people think it really works where the sprinkler goes off wherever the fire is located and has gotten hot enough for the sprinkler to turn on, which that's a big flame that has to get up to the ceiling to begin with. And prior to that, there's a lot of fumes. So um, fire suppression, I think, is important. And maybe having that in the most likely places where a fire would break out, like wherever your electrical stuff is or that kind of thing. But having monitor system, monitoring systems that are going to tell you when fumes have gotten too strong. And then what happens is, it, you know, is do all the doors open? Do, you know, do the dogs get let out somehow? It, it's weird. I was talking to Susan Briggs, who's my business partner couple of weeks ago, or actually like a week ago, used to be 20 years ago, all kennels were indoor, outdoor. Like you could hardly find a kennel that was not indoor, outdoor, where you had runs that without touching the dog, you could just open a door and the dogs would go outside. Those are like few and far between now. We've created this whole sort of luxury um, suite environment, which is good on the one hand, but then when it comes to things like the thinking through your emergency plan, they're a lot harder because now you're like, how do you get 50 dogs inside to outside when you can't just pull a lever? Well, and when they're so panicking, right? Like exactly. when it's emergency, what do you do? Because getting them to where they can have fresh air and a concrete wall between them and a fire is better. But you're right. When we have all these all indoor kennel spaces, a lot of times they're in places where there is no real 
outdoor fenced area, if it was even safe to turn all the animals out into that space and so it becomes it becomes a much much bigger issue. Well, yeah, and that's the other thing is how you know if you do have a good evacuation plan, um, how many dogs realistically can you take care of, and how how fast can you get to? In this situation we were talking about, there were 75 dogs in the building with no people. And so even if you had one person, though, how fast can one person open 75 crates, even if they're just running and opening them? And then where are the dogs going? All like, There's just a lot of questions. And I don't want to be the like negative Nelly, because I think there's a lot of facilities out there doing really great things. But that is one area where I think people just assume that it'll be okay. And it 99.9% of the time it is until it isn't. And right. what's the plan? So I think it's just something you have to ask about. And that's true for anywhere. You could be boarding at your vet, your pet sitter could be, you know, there that happens, that can happen anywhere. So you said this is an unregulated industry. Um, are there some industry standards and some accreditations that are worth something that that there are some sort of process for making sure that there are best practices that a dog trainer can say to a family, look for a daycare that is a member of this organization or has this accreditation. Yeah. So I would actually be looking for, um, there is a trade association that um, international boarding and pet service association, but there is actually independent certification now for pet boarding and daycare facilities and daycares. Um, and that's through PAC. It's the Professional Animal Care Certification Council. And that PAC doesn't certify the facility. It for- certifies the people working in the facility. So I would be looking for a facility that has their handlers who are PAC certified or working towards PAC certification, at least. Um, and if they have that certification, it's going to obviously be on their website. That's going to give them a little bit better assurance that they, the staff has had some training. PAC doesn't train them they have, they're very much like CCPDT. They have the body of knowledge that says you should know all of this stuff and be able to do all of this stuff. Um, And then they do the testing. They can get that knowledge from wherever they want to get that knowledge. But I would still, I would be looking at people who have been certified through PAC and there's different levels of certification. There's, there's basic level handling or pet technicians. And then there's also owner um, that, that owner actually has been certified as knowing everything that a uh, facility owners should know about running a safe operation. So I would be looking for that as one of the biggest things and still asking those questions as well. But I think that's going to help to get them closer. And then should they have like pet first aid certification, pet CPR certification? They should, yes. All all of the handlers that are interacting with the dogs should have first aid training for for canines or cats if they have cats as well. And I that they should also understand the most common medical attention, the most comical medical symptoms for what we see in daycares, which or boarding facilities, which typically is understanding heat stroke, um, cold. If they're in like Alaska, understanding how to treat any kind of cold or frostbite symptoms, or more likely prevent it. Like if you're in a hot weather environment, how long are the dogs outside, and what kind of hot heat awareness training is happening? Um, and then also bloat and then just understanding 
basic what does a healthy dog look like so all of that generally speaking is going to cover be covered in a for basic first aid class that's either given by a company like pet tech or um cp or uh, first aid, what's it called red cross used to have one for pets but there's specific uh pet first aid classes that they should be taking the um i was going to say the national association of professional pet sitters naps has a certification program as well um i was yeah. certified through naps and I learned, um, and then you, ha you have to learn all about, it. I learned everything from cats to squirrels and fish and birds and dogs, huge section on, you know, dogs and cats, the two most common, but you learned a lot of other things as well. And you had to take a very comprehensive test. Yeah. And that's, they should have that first aid, first aid training for whatever animals they take care of. So if they're only doing dogs and cats, but a lot of boarding facilities will take, you know, they'll take reptiles, they'll take birds, they'll take rabbits. So understanding what illnesses look like in those pets and how to get some treatment. They're not necessarily going to be a veterinarian, but they should be able to recognize, okay, this is a problem. We need to take it to a vet or here's some basic first aid things that I can do to help. We did a, um, a couple, must've been three years ago. I think we did, um, a podcast on, uh, uh, dog first aid. So I'll make sure that there's a link to that one as well. That's another, I can't remember the name of it. It's not coming to my mind, uh, the name of the course, but it, I took that course as well. And that was very good. So, yeah. um, if you can find one through like the ASPCA, what that's really cool is that they have dogs you can actually do. They have not real dogs. These are stuffed dogs, but yeah. they're dog dummies that you can do CPR on. So you can get a feel for exactly how which much is, pressure yeah, you're supposed to, to do. And anyway, that was kind of interesting. So, well, Robin, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Uh, I'm thinking that we pretty much covered everything that we had talked about. Is there anything else that we need to warn people about? Like, is there anything? No, I think I covered everything that that I wanted to cover. And I'll send you those uh, two documents I had mentioned. I think those resources would be fantastic. And I do like... I do think that um, people misunderstand, like, it shouldn't be Tinder. It shouldn't be a rave. Like, that's not, you don't need, you don't want yeah. or need your dog to do that. And I love your line about puppies just came out of a litter. They, they know how to play with other dogs. Like, they already know how to do that. <laughs> exactly. And their mom, their mom has actually hopefully started setting some limits already. And yeah. saying, oh, the spigots are not available to you anymore. You have little razor sharp teeth. So <laughs> exactly. but that's not the primary. I, I love that, that that's not the primary goal in puppy raising. Because you're right. That's all anybody wants to do is just let their puppies play all the time. And I'm like, no, that's that's not that helpful, really. Exactly. In the of things. It was great to meet you. Yeah, you too. And I'll be happy to come back anytime and talk more about daycare, anything. So just let me know. We would love that. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.